Hello. Uh, what a wonderful audience. Um, it's amazing. Well, not so amazing. We have a, a, a fabulous event this evening. Um, my name is Robert Buckingham, and I'm the CEO of the Naomi Milgram Foundation and creative director of M Pavilion. And we have some feedback. Um, first and most importantly, uh, we wish to acknowledge the Boonarong people, the traditional owners of, and custodians of the land on which we meet, and pay our respects to their land and their elders past and present. Um, on behalf of the Naomi Milgram Foundation and M Pavilion, I'd like to welcome you to this very special design event, um, a conversation with our esteemed guest, Jan Gell. Um, as you may know, M Pavilion is an initiative of the Naomi Milgram Foundation, um, delivered as part of an innovative partnership. Um, our major partners are the City of Melbourne, the Victorian State Government through Creative Victoria and the ANZ. It involves, as you realise, a commissioning um, of a, a, a temporary pavilion every year. This is our third pavilion, designed this year by Indian architect B. Joy Jane of Studio Mumbai. And the installation that you have here is something you'll read about later. It's called Hypnopod, and it's, um, it's on for uh, three or four days. Tonight's conversation, however, um, is a tale of three cities. Um, and it will focus on the way in which three cities, Copenhagen, Melbourne and Sydney, have addressed similar issue issues in different ways. It also expands on how Jan Gell's vision for humanistic urbanism and versions of his design philosophy are adopted and reoriented in other cities. Jan is joined by Monica Baroni, CEO of Sydney, the City of Sydney, and of course we've uh, put on our very best weather for you, uh, Monica. And Rob Adams, who is Director of City and Design Projects, has been a great champion not only of M Pavilion, but the redevelopment and reimagining of Melbourne. We thank Rob and the City of Melbourne for making this event possible. Um, tonight will be moderated and introduced by Shelley Penn. Shelley Penn is an architect whose work includes strategic advice to governments and the private sector. She has held a number of senior positions centred on quality, urban and environmental outcomes. She's a member of the Victorian Design Review Panel, an Associate uh, Professor of Architecture at Melbourne School of Design, University of Melbourne, and an Adjunct Professor in Architecture uh, at Monash University, where she was also recently appointed to the role of University Architect. In 2014, she was one of AFR's 100 Women of Influence. So, ladies and gentlemen, please make our guests welcome. Thanks, Robert. Thank you, everybody, for being here. Can you hear me okay? I'm sorry I've got my back to some of you, but it's kind of bad luck, I guess. Um, this discussion, as Robert's mentioned, I think follows uh, a lecture given by Jan Gell last night at Melbourne University at the Melbourne Conversation. That uh, lecture is actually available on YouTube. If anybody, I'm sure some of you were there and some of you wouldn't have been, but it's worth, it's worth a look. Just uh, YouTube Melbourne Conversations and you'll find it. Jan outlined in that talk some of his extensive achievements in advancing the quality of urban spaces around the world. Um, there were many themes discussed and many hinted at, some obvious and some less so, from cars, bikes and pedestrians to design quality, community engagement and the enabling, if somewhat scary, efficient democracy of Moscow. An interesting approach to ponder in the Trump era, I think. I'll draw on some of these themes and some questions just to prompt uh, an engaging discussion between Jan, Monica and Rob 
um, bringing to bear their experiences in the three cities of Copenhagen, Sydney and Melbourne and beyond. But first, very briefly, some information and then some introductions. The information I've mentioned is YouTube. There's also uh, two hashtags running for anybody who likes to engage in that kind of thing. Hashtag Melbourne, uh, M Pavilion and hashtag Yarn Girl. I'll just introduce the three speakers and then I'll hopefully ask some decent questions to get them going. Jan Gell is a Danish architect and urban designer whose career has focused on improving the quality of urban life by reorienting city design towards the pedestrian and cyclist. His principles are based in the knowledge that the shape of cities impact on the human lives within them. But good architecture is not about form, but about the interaction between form and life. Jan received a Masters of Architecture from the Royal Danish Academy of Fine Arts in Copenhagen in 1960 before practising architecture from 1960 to 66. In 1971, he wrote the influential Danish book, Life Between Buildings, and later he completed Public Spaces, Public Life. Most recently, he has authored Cities for People in 2010 and How to Study Public Life, co-authored with Birgit Savare in 2013. Jan is a leading and influential voice in his field, revered, referenced and called upon by councils, planning departments and all levels across cities the world over. In late 2016, with support from Jan, writers Annie Matern and Peter Newman released People Cities, The Life and Legacy of Jan Gell from Island Press. This is Jan. <laughs> <laughs> Monica Barone is the CEO of the City of Sydney. Over more than 10 years in that role, she has overseen the development and implementation of Sustainable Sydney 2030, the long-term strategy for Sydney's CBD and surrounding villages. She has overseen major projects such as initiation of the CBD light rail and the 13 billion green square urban renewal. Since her appointment, the city has completed hundreds of infrastructure projects, winning over 90 national and international awards and including key outcomes such as the revitalisation of forgotten laneways into vibrant public spaces. Under Monica's leadership, the City of Sydney established design advisory and public art advisory panels, which comprise independent experts to help the city continually improve the quality of private development, the city's urban design and public projects, and the integration of public art to engage and celebrate the creative life of Sydney. Monica holds a Master's in Creative Arts, is a member of the Australian Institute of Company Directors and was on the board of the Sydney Festival for 10 years until mid-2015. In 2014, she was a 100 Women of Influence finalist. Monica's in yellow. Um, Rob Adams is the Director of City Design and Projects at the City of Melbourne and a member of the Urbanisation Council of the World Economic Forum. With over 40 years' experience as an architect and urban designer and 33 years at the City of Melbourne, Rob has made a significant contribution to the rejuvenation of central Melbourne. He and his team have been the recipients of over 150 local, national and international awards, including on four occasions receiving the Australian Award for Urban Design and the C40 Cities Climate Leadership Award 2014 for its adaptation and resilience projects. Rob has also been awarded the Prime Minister's Environmentalist of the Year Award in 2008 
and the Order of Australia in 2007 for his contribution to architecture and urban design. His current focus is on how cities could be used to accommodate and mitigate rapid population growth and the onset of climate change. He has published and presented extensively on the subject of transforming cities for a sustainable future. And Rob is the one that I haven't yet pointed at. <laughs> okay, so less of my voice now and uh, more of three very important voices to my right. This is a tale of three cities, that's the introduction. <clears throat> Copenhagen, Sydney and Melbourne. And perhaps it has lessons for all cities. I think that's probably obvious. Each of you has had a long tenure uh, working intensely in the city space in different ways, in different modes, different, within different organisations. I want to ask for a short tale from each of you to start. I'm thinking of your approaches and ideas about your respective cities, um, outcomes to city-making initiatives, perhaps key learnings, perhaps to help you focus one of the clearest things that you've learned or seen in your time in the city space, in your, in your careers. And I'm going to start with Monica. So I'm from Sydney. And in Sydney, everyone's a developer, or they think they are. And greed is rampant, and the public interest is always compromised. So it was against that backdrop when the Lord Mayor Clover Moore was elected that we commenced the process of developing a vision and plan to guide how the city would be, would be developed and transformed. And that vision is called Sustainable Sydney 2030. And we spent 18 months consulting with the community. And essentially what we asked them was, what do you value? And then we went about um, in sh and, and then encoded into our plan a way of protecting the things that people value as the city grows and changes. So people said that they value the sunlight. So we had to ensure that development did not encroach on the sunlight. And they value the meeting places. They value coming together. They, they value access, being able to get around easily. They value affordability and they value special places um, at, at the, you know, that where they can recreate at night and during the day. The job of city administrators is to protect the city as the city grows and, and changes. And you can only do that by determining what it is that people value, consulting with people, and then enshrining that in everything that you do. And what people value is just another way of saying the public interest. What people value is the public interest. So the lesson for us, well, I'll just add one other thing. Having done that, though, we then worked with people like Jan and Rob Adams, who also came and really supported us through that process. And because it wasn't enough just to list values in terms of city planning, we also had to give people pictures of how the city might look as it was transformed if we maintained those values. We need to give people pictures of what it might look like and narratives about how that would, would um, be implemented. And so Jan, through the work that he did with us, enabled us to find that narrative, that story about the city transformation, but that clearly went back to if this is what you value, then here's a way that this city might operate in the future where those things that you value, the public interest, is protected. So the lesson is you've got to go back to the people. It's the citizens that have to determine what's important in the city. And it is the role of administrators to protect the public interest in that process. Jan? 
Yeah. The story I can tell from the city of Copenhagen and from my work there is very different from your story and certainly also from Rob's story because I'm an academic and uh, if people come to Copenhagen and ask for something I've been involved in doing, they can go away again. There's almost nothing, but there's something which I'm very proud about. That's the city architect who would say, so many people come and say, what can we see here, what Jan has done? And she said, you can see nothing, because all the thing is in here, and that I'm very proud of. Mm -hmm. It's something about changing the mindset, because first you must change the mindset, then you can change the cities. And the story I can tell about Copenhagen is that very early on in the 60s, we started in the university really carefully to study what people were doing in cities and how the built form influenced the way people used the city. And in this way, we started to have knowledge about what people liked and what people didn't like and whatever. And then we started gradually to have the same knowledge about life in the city as the traffic engineers all the time has had about what makes cars happy. <laughs> and then we were able very early on to put in front of the politicians, this is how the city is developing seen from the people point, users point of view. And here you have, of course, all the time, the traffic engineers dream. And then they had a choice. And this, the, so the influence in Copenhagen has been very indirect because we at the university were studying all this throughout all the years. Copenhagen was the first city in the world where the use of the city was carefully documented. And that knowledge has been used for 40 years and updated all the time. And when I retired as a professor, I had this very nice letter from the mayor saying that if you guys in university had not monitored and documented the life in the city, we politicians would never have dared to make Copenhagen the most livable city in the world, <coughs> after Melbourne, of course. Mm. But, <laughs> but there's some competition up there. And so it's a story about changing the mindset and then somebody else can go about change the cities. And um, we have started to make people and the use of cities visible for everybody to see so we know what we are doing, just as the traffic engineers always knew where they were likely to head. Thank, thanks, Jan. That's, there's lots of themes. We're going to come back to lots of things both of you have been saying. But, Rob, what, what's your tale? Shelley, it's, you know, all of those things uh, obviously are a big part of it. But for me, uh, coming out of private practice and being asked to come into local government, uh, it was actually the furthest thing for my mind. But uh, I just immigrated from Zimbabwe and uh, it, it seemed like a really good job. <laughs> um, so we got to write a strategy. And... Um, in that years in the, in the early 80s, there was no money and there could be no grand plans. So the plan was, how do you take a city and you take the bones of a city and how do you incrementally over a long period of time make it better? So the, the vision was a 24-hour city that looked and felt like Melbourne. 
<clears throat> and I suppose the lesson I take out of that is twofold. One is that changing a city takes a long, long time. And what our governments have tended to do is contract out their creative intellect in the hope that they can buy it in when they need it. And that is a flawed policy in my mind. And I never thought I'd actually be saying that when I was a young architect riling against the, planning, uh, the building inspectors and the planning inspectors. But that is the truth of it, that those actions that take place slowly through the statutory planners, through the traffic engineers, through the people in parks and gardens, are the things that enrich our city over time if they're all made to improve the city. So I sit here now knowing that the big projects will sell themselves. We don't have to talk about you know, the Swanson Streets, the Burrung Mars, you know, South Bank, Postcode 3000. They looked after themselves. I met Jan because he taught us how to take those small things, bring them together in a group, get the data, and make them important. So if our governments are going to become intelligent clients, they need to start contracting back the intellect that makes that happen. Sounds like it's all about people, the community, the mindset, the decision makers. Um, that was a little bit structured because I wanted us to start hearing from each of the speakers. But what I really want to do is stimulate a conversation. I'm going to try to manage you so that we get to hear from all of you. But I just want to throw some questions out. We may not get through them all. It doesn't really matter. I think we just want to hear from these people. So I guess the, the next question to anyone who wants to answer is, what, what is the role of the city? What's the role and purpose of the city? And, and I guess, I mean, that in the context of a state, in, in our case, or a province or a, a whole country, um, what matters most? Is it urban morphology? Is it the urban structure, connectivity and accessibility? Is it the quality of streets? Is it the sort of the whole ecosystem? Is it the, the culture? Um, sorry, there's lots of questions in there. Yeah. <laughs> Pick one. Look, a kick-off question. I mean, Benjamin Barb has just written a book called Should Mayors Rule the World? And right now, when you look at some of our national leaders, uh, you'd have to say yes. Um, so, but that, that's a slightly naughty way of saying we're all living in cities. Um, and at what, what level do cities get choreographed? And I'm afraid they're not getting choreographed from the federal level. And many, in many instances, they're not getting choreographed from the state level. So the interesting thing for me in being in local government is that if you're about social cohesion, um, you know, and, and economic benefit and, uh, you know, environmental sustainability, that's coming through the cities. And it's coming through policies around mixed use, mm -hmm. density, connectivity, high quality public realm and those things. So city, we back to a world where the city economies are starting to drive the economy of this planet. So what about, sorry to interrupt you because you haven't answered yet, but beyond access to services, access to work, efficiencies around uh, access to resources and youth resources and so on. What about specifically in terms of urban quality, the, the sorts of things you've been talking about? What's the role of the city? Um, it's a slightly yeah. narrower question. Yeah? Yeah, me. <clears throat> yeah, I was all the time sitting, thinking about that it, it's, it's all about a good urban habitat for homo sapiens. It's, it's not about this sector or that sector. It's a very basic question of having a good habitat for people living in cities. And we 
have lived in cities for many, 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 many years, and we are increasingly going to live in cities. So it is really the the thing is really to find out all the basic things which should be in place so that we could have a good urban habitat for Homo sapiens, being they very young or being they older and older. And we have had for many years so many technocratic and bureaucratic uh, things about the city. And we had, Monica mentioned the greed in, in, in Sydney as one of the things we have had to fight. So, and I would like to go a little bit back to a quote from from him, uh, from Enrique Peñalosa, who is a mayor of Bogota in Colombia, who said that it is a little bit a paradox that we know so much about good habitat for mountain gorillas and so little about good urban habitat for homo sapiens. To me, it's very much to be right down to there. And one of my favorite stories is how my granddaughter, Laura, at seven, can now herself walk to school because all the streets going to school has been, the sidewalk has been taken across the streets so that the children can walk all the way to school, but the cars have to go over the sidewalks. That makes a fantastic difference, and that's about making better urban habitat for Homo sapiens of all ages. There's also a little story that if we focus on the ones who are seven, eight, and the ones who are 80, and make sure they have a good time, forget about the rest. They'll manage. <laughs> Monica. Over 50% of the world's people live in cities, and in Australia it's way more than that. So the world is rapidly uh, rapidly urbanising. And so cities are, you know, are where the majority of people live, and we have to make sure they work. What we do know is that, you know, we all know from our own experience that if the city is well-designed... Um, and, and accessible, then that enhances our lives, the quality of our lives. And if they're not, it really detracts from our lives. So if you cannot get around, if you do not feel safe, if you do not feel included, that detracts from the quality of your life it and it, it impacts on the, the quality of the economy um, and all of the things that make the city a functioning place. But I want to also talk about, you know, the importance of the quality of the urban fabric, you know. Um, I, I'm one of these people, one of the things I really hate is those horrible off-the-shelf children's playgrounds, you know, and, they're, and, they're, and we get them because, you know, the risk managers at the council say, well, you can't have that because a child will stick their finger in it and it'll break and this will happen and that will happen. And, you know, we're always railing against this because it's really, I think, insulting to children to not give them quality um, playgrounds. We have a program at the City of Sydney where we're going over through every tiny little open space and regenerating it. And one day I went to visit um, one of the projects as it was underway. It's a tiny park. It was about as big as this stage. And when I visited, the artists that were working in the project were sitting there. They'd made this kind of igloo shape out of metal. And then they'd gotten all these old ropes and they were weaving them to make the shape of the igloo and they were hand-stitching it. And I thought to myself, 
at last. When we start hand-stitching the children's playground, now we're building the kind of places that our community and our children deserve. That quality, you know, and the other thing was that those children were watching these artists, the children that were going to be in that playground, and you could see the joy. So anyway, I'm, what I'm saying is that, you know, that attention that you talk about, Rob, that attention, that loving attention to every square inch of the city, is not just because it makes it look nice. It actually feeds our souls and makes the city function much better. Mm, lots in there too. Yeah. <laughs> I Can I just yeah, take please. one from, yeah. just a one line quote, it's from my three-year-old granddaughter who has been initiated by my son-in-law and she says, Grandad, you just have to widen the footpath and plant more trees. Mm -hmm. That's right. So, I mean, Quality, I completely agree, and I think yeah. it's an underlying theme in everything that you're all talking about. Um, but, you know, people have different ideas about what that means. Is that just, you know, is that bluestone paving? Well, we, we do know that's great quality, it's good stuff, and it's well tested here. Is it more trees? And, you know, what about urban structure? What about the form of a city? Um, and what about differences between cities? You've talked about sort of universal themes that I think are relevant, and I, I'm sure there'd be broad agreement, but there are differences between cities. Um, Melbourne is better than Sydney. <laughs> <laughs> I just had to say it, sorry. Um, you, you can leave now. <laughs> it's, it, it's a different city. terrible interventions. Terrible infrastructure interventions. No, I'm only yeah. teasing, I'm only joking. But, so, but there's something important about the differences in terms of quality and culture yeah and what makes them places that people want to be in or belong to. And I guess I want to get past the, the, the general things that, which are exactly right that you're talking about, but what's, what are the other qualities that are a bit harder to define that are also important? Look, I would, I'd say you go to local character because, um, you know, it's one of those five or six things that I talk about that make up a good city because Bluestone's fine for Melbourne, but you wouldn't put it into Siena um, or you wouldn't put it into some other city. So... I think the mistake we make is we go around looking at other cities and say, can I have one of those or can I have one of those? Rather than looking at your own city, your own context, and saying, what actually works in this context? So if all the builders in Dubai had looked at how you'd actually built cities in the past in the desert, you do not stick isolated objects up into the sky covered in glass. Mm -hmm. You actually group them together so they protect each other. So... I think the secret for all our cities is find out what is your character. What actually is the reason you know, you've grown up and the materials have been used and why you've been designed. They'll all be different and they won't actually suit other cities and towns. But they, they're part of your identity. And if you can then enrich that identity through paving and detail and whatever you do, then I think you've got something that people want to come and visit uh, and want to come and live in because it actually has that identity of which people gain a pride. And I think pride in cities is something that we need to get back because we lost it, as Jan eloquently pointed out last night, through the modernist movement. It all just became the same. Mm. Yep. Thanks, Jan. Yeah, I, I, uh, I've written about this and, and, and I really think having worked in so many continents and places and in, in very different cultures that I'm very convinced that there are some basic qualities which are related to Homo sapiens, our senses, our biological history. If we are in Africa, if we are in Japan, if we are in, in Arabia, or if we are in, in Canada or Northern Europe, uh, 
that there are so many similarities and, and so many things. This thing called human scale is not very different from one end of the world to the other. And there are so many things which actually we are, we are all comfortable with. And of course there are differences between the cities and their cultures have developed in various ways and whatever. But there are so many basic things we could put right. But I would like to turn a little bit into another subject. Yesterday, I, when we rejoiced about, say, look at Melbourne, look how many things have happened here, look at Sydney, what they're doing, look at Copenhagen, what they're doing, and then when we look at all these things, we realize that what we really have done in these places are tidying up existing structures after the invasion of the motor car and giving more room for people, mostly in the city centers. But we have enormous many tasks ahead of us. That is, what, what about the suburbs? Mm -hmm. What about the new construction? Why can some of the qualities we apply to Melbourne not be used in, to make better uh, new construction? And the biggest of all the tasks are all the fast-growing cities in the third world where all things goes and, and the greedy guys and the, all of the guys, they're doing all the things, on or, horrible things, which we've seen. So they're so we can rejoice about these livable cities here and there and realize that's only pinpricks in, in, in all the urban fabric. And, and these basic qualities must be extended to encompass all parts of the things where people live in, and we have to live in urban environments, and we only have addressed a little fraction of all the urban environments we have, and we are going to have twice as much in the next 20 years, and I can be very worried about what the quality would be there. Um, it took a while to make Melbourne what Melbourne mm. is today, mm. and we don't have that much time, but we <coughs> have to put a lot of pressure on the human quality issue in all urban fabric which are to be built and which are, have not been addressed yet. I, wanted, I think that's great and it's a great segue because I wanted to ask, even beyond the suburbs, what about regional towns? Are there lessons from the city that apply? Because I think it's different. I mean, there's something about population. I mean, Rob, I don't know how much you want to talk about various experiments with Swanson Street over the years where... To, to me, it seems to be there's a relationship between the numbers of people in the city, which is dependent on things like your postcode 3000 initiative, mm. bringing people to live in the city, those sorts of things. I mean, can we can we translate some of the learnings to regional towns, or will they just not work? Is it a different different kind of set of issues there? I, I think you can uh, translate them because I think the beauty of the regional towns is they are communities. Um, you know, what's happened, uh, you know, with the capital cities is they, they've come from being communities and they've expanded beyond that. Uh, and now we've got communities in the centre and we've got dormitories on the fringe. And we don't recognise them as dormitories because they still look like suburbia and they still look like communities, but they've lost all the trays of, of those communities. And, and to do anything, you have to own a couple of cars and you have to jump in the car every time you want to do something. So to me... Um, I'm hugely optimistic uh, because I think there is only one solution 
A, your reg regional towns, yes, we should have rapid transport. I mean, I just agonise every time they talk about whether we should have fast rail from here to Sydney to Brisbane. You know, just get on and do it. Um, you know, there, there are towns along the way that you'll pick up and there are communities that you can actually engage through that. But when you look at, uh, you know, um, the capital cities, if they did nothing else but said we're not going to subdivide another piece of land and let's actually work within the boundaries we've got, yeah. what they'd be forced to do is come back in on themselves and start to better utilise their infrastructure. And I won't go on for too long, but we did that with Melbourne. The result was you could double the population on 7.5% of the land, which means you can leave 92.5% untouched. So suburbia can remain like that. You would produce high streets employment and activity in all the areas. Most importantly, you'd start dealing with the symptoms that we are dealing with in the city, which is about family violence and homelessness and, you know, isolation. The biggest thing is you'd save over 50 years $440 billion in infrastructure. Mm. So the answer's there. We just need politicians who've got the guts to do it. I think in Sydney, um, you know, it's exactly the same situation as you're describing here. You know, what we're talking about in the part of the city that I'm responsible for is the inner city and, the, you know, the CBD near the harbour. But so many people in Sydney live out in Western Sydney and they're condemned as a consequence of the way the city has been designed to two hours in the car to work and two hours home. And what that's created is, you know, because most of the jobs have been concentrated in the city of Sydney. And so, uh, you know, the, our part of the city, down the, near the harbour there. And so what that's created is a huge social divide. The levels of youth unemployment out in the West are just extraordinary. And, and, the, and, and this comes back to greed as well, Shelley, because what has happened and what one of the things that the City of Sydney is pushing against is that, of course, most of the landowners in the CBD are very rich and powerful and they want to continue converting their pits of land and, and extracting value from that land. And so we're trying to slow it down in order to cause them and force them to go into the other areas and start to do some of that commercial development to, to bring jobs to other areas. Mm. Now, that's not enough because to bring the character, we have to do what you've described. Each of those neighbourhoods can have beautiful main streets. Sure. There are catchments of enough people around those main streets to maintain local shops, local uh, community facilities, you know, a local economy. But you have to, you know, government has to do the hard work of really pushing investment, you know, really managing investment and putting it to where people need. So it's not about making it the same, as you've said, but the process is much the same. What is it that people need? How do you make up, you know, by asking people, what do you need? How could, what would make the place more enjoyable, more livable for you? And then how do we then shape both the fabric of the city and the resources and the services of the city to achieve that for everyone? Jan, can I, oh, I was going to ask you to extend that, but I'll, I'll just quickly flag what I was going to ask you and then but I'll let you finish because you were just saying... It's around governance. So Monica's talked about government and governance. Rob referred to that. Jan spoke eloquently about some interesting experiences he's had around the world with different governments and their ability to sometimes do things very quickly um, and effectively. You know, is, is the sort of executive order or the, um, 
you know, the Moscow-style uh, efficient democracy, and I'll let Jan talk about that if he wants to, as opposed to 18 months of community engagement, are they, are they polls? Are they compatible? I mean, can, can we do things quickly? There's lots and lots of conflicts in there. What, what's good government in terms of the urban environment? Yeah, I, I, I don't really like to talk about that here That's because okay. I think there are so many <laughs> other in, okay. important questions. Um, I do think that when we talk about all these things, we will have to realize that we have a, a number of new very important drivers which we have to address. One is, of course, the climate challenge and all the problems for the climate which comes from the way we have built the cities and we know we have to build them in other ways and we have touched on this in several ways. And the other thing is that we have realized that for at least 50 years we have built cities which made people sit sit and make them having the sitting sick syndrome. That is, that, that is so that, that they, they die earlier and it's a very expensive for the health systems to take care of all these people who have not moved throughout their life but been sitting and sitting and sitting. And we know we have to do something about that. And we know that if, if we make cities so that people meet more, walk more, uh, and, and uh, be, be mobile in other ways, we can, have, uh, we can address these things. So we, we must uh, really think about making cities so that that we have other ways of mobility. I get sick and tired going to America and hearing everybody sitting, nodding when they say all the problems will be solved when we have the automatic cars. <laughs> and then a little bit later somebody say, yeah, that's great because then we can have twice as many cars on the streets we have. We don't need to build more streets. Will we have twice as much quality if we have twice as much automatic cars? as we have today, it's only the automobile industry who will be happy. All the rest of us will suffer. So will the climate. So will the health. We, we have to go for these basic things, the climate, the health, and the livability of people. And we have that old, mobili that old technology of mobility, which was invented in Detroit, not quite in Detroit, but in Germany, but in Detroit, <laughs> in Detroit in 1905, they made this mobility that everybody had four dropper wheels and that was very good mobility strategy for the Wild West 115 years ago. But it is definitely not a good mobility and technology, uh, technology mobility for the 21st century. It's really awful. You mentioned these people doing two hours this way and two hours that way. Go to Mexico City and see them doing three and a half way hours this way and three and a half hours the other way going to Sao Paulo. It, we, and you also mentioned that, that we, we, have, we have developed some basic technologies, basically about uh, mobility, which are completely outdated. Yeah. And we can do much more smarter and have a much better life if we start to look at the essentials instead of making the automobile industry happy. So I'm going to I'm going to get back to governance, <laughs> but not straight away. How do you make that change? You've been extremely just on the issue of agency, making change happen. 
You've been, all three of you have been incredibly uh, influential and have been are responsible for significant positive change in our cities, which is amazing. Jan, how do you, how have you done that? You've, you have, you know, what are the ways? Is it just bringing people along by being a, a very entertaining speaker, which you are? Or is it publication? We know you do that very well. As, you know, yes, those things exist, obviously, but how do you bring along the decision makers or how do you bring along the community? They're, they're different audiences. I started saying that my background is an academic. My background is a teacher and I have all my life worked on finding out things and then making sure that to communicate them and influence the way people were thinking. I have never had any power in my life or been anywhere near the power. I've only been telling about visions of what it could be like this and we have these problems here and there. So to me it's very important this thing that it's through the mindsets we can change mm -hmm. the world mm -hmm. and I've seen that that works that we can really change the way people think because you can never ask for something you have never heard about. And so many people are told wrong stories by people, the greedy guys and, and people who want to sell gimmicks. Now we have to have smart cities so we can sell a lot of gimmicks to be smarter instead of being more <laughs> humanistic and, and kind. So it's something about... Um, best practice and, and communicating uh, new visions so that, that people can see that there are other ways to go than the ones we know about. So, and that's why, you know, most many cities around the world have worked with Jan, because Jan comes and helps us kind of develop that vision. He brings the comparisons and he brings a, a methodology that enables us to then measure that and compare that. And, and he visits us periodically and gives us strength. Because then when Jan goes home, the only way to do it is to be bloody-minded and just and tenacious and just persevere. You know, it's one tree at a time. It's removing one parking space at a time. It's removing one car at a time. It's, it's you know, it's restoring one curb at a time. The only way that cities are transformed uh, is to have the vision, to have the community behind you, and then you need city governments that are consistent, working towards a plan, made up of staff for whom the city is their vocation. That's the most wonderful thing I think you find at the City of Sydney, City of Melbourne. People who have dedicated their lives to their city. They know every square inch. It's a joy to walk around with them and they protect every square inch, and you fight to protect and transform and improve every square inch and demand that every time the city is touched, it is improved. We lose lots of battles, but we just keep fighting. So you've got to have the vision, the clarity around what it is you're doing, the methodology, the measurement, so you've got the evidence, You've got to engage the community because they have to get behind you and, and insist that, 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 it, you, that you continue. And then you need strong city governments that painstakingly, tenaciously stay on pr that program, which is what, you know, comes then to the thing about governance. You know, cities are, in, are really, in terms of governance, on the ascendancy. You know, cities are solving the problems that other levels of government are paralysed by. But we are solving problems about climate change. We are solving problems about 
social equality and all of those things by putting it through that urban lens. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, yeah. well, I think the other thing, um, <laughs> I, I totally agree with Monica about that doggedness. I mean, if we had said in 85 uh, that we were going to take 90 hectares of asphalt out of the central city and convert it to parks and extended footpaths, uh, we would have been stopped in our tracks. So you do it by incremental subversivism in a, in a way and you get it done. But also you need to understand human nature. So people carry around fears and they carry around cultural norms about you know, where their parents bought and where they lived. And I'll give you an example. When, when we had that 11 years, people call it the millennium drought, but when we saw the onset of climate change um, and, and we started to lose uh, our, our tree canopy, we said you need an urban forest strategy. Now, had we gone out and said, let's talk about the species of trees that we're going to put in the city, we would have got to where Canberra got. They just hit a wall. You know, everybody argued, should it be exotic, should it be indigenous, and all the rest of it. And I know that's important. But what we did is we actually said, so what are we trying to do? We're trying to keep the temperature low and we're trying to keep you know, the, the tree stock in place. So maybe the more important things are things like increasing our canopy cover from you know, 20% to 40% or getting a diversity of species uh, or getting moisture in the soil. So we put the strategy up without talking about a tree species. We actually said these are the metrics that we're going to need if an urban forest is going to be successful. We've just put out a biodiversity strategy and, and we've done all the rest and everybody loves it now. But the metrics are in place and, and the, the money's in place. You know, year on year, they're spending two to three million dollars planting 3,000 trees in the central city. So we've got to understand the nature of people's fears and not go straight to the fear. Try to actually talk to, you know, the, the, pros, uh, the, you know, the future and what mm. the prospect of a future is like. And then, then you can engage people. And, and giving uh, things that decisions can be made about, That's such right. as canopy increase by numbers. Because yeah. Yeah. we all have our prejudices. Yeah. Can I give yeah. a story? Yeah. So when we were put installing the city's um, cycle network, we call in, in the city's plan, we call it the Liverpool Green Network, right? And it's, you know, it's got a cycleway and it's got trees and it's got footpaths and it's, you know, they're beautiful streets. So when we were doing the first one, which was right from the, the harbour to, to almost to the airport... Well, you know, you would have thought that, you know, the sky was falling. All hell broke loose. It was going to be the end of the economy. Um, you know, the Lord Mayor was destroying the city. It was just chaos for months. It was going to be just absolutely terrible. So we all know these stories. Jan's got so many of these stories. And finally, we put it in. And now people ring up all the time and say, when are you going to do that to my street? But the really best thing, and this is a really Sydney story, is that real estate agents now advertise homes being on the Liverpool Green Network or near the Liverpool Green Network. <laughs> so when real estate agents grasp the vision, you know you're really getting somewhere. Fantastic. <laughs> um, so I guess that kind of leads into change in a way, uh, in, in the big sense. You know, cities are, are always dynamic. Um, we know they're growing. But there are also often, frequently, um, major interventions that are sometimes literally earth-shattering, as in our case in Melbourne with Melbourne Metro, for example. There are big, big projects. Um, how do you deal with those? How do you, I guess, work out what are those key big points that you can identify and, and advocate and champion um, in terms of legacy and 
how do you identify what is a good legacy from those, but also how do you manage change? Often they go for years and years and years. How do you deal with those those incremental little urban impacts on people's enjoyment of the city access and so on? Um, Jan, I think you've experienced some pretty big projects. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about all this. I said about best practice. And, of course, whenever these big things go in, it's such a strong thing to have an overview of the other places and the success stories from other places. So you can tell the people that this is what they did there and there and there, and these are the problems we have, and we might do the same thing and get some of the same things. But then, of course, before you have the first best practices, you need to have pioneers, you need to have courageous mayors and cities who take a lead. And I've been studying this kind of things uh, in, in a number of years and in a number of books where we looked around the world to find the cities who were doing especially interesting things. And then there was an interesting pattern here. There were people behind the, the success stories. Everywhere there were people who had a vision and a leadership ability or could gather together uh, the crowd of people who could carry out this. So there, there are some people here and there over the years who have dared and who have put together visions so that we can be uh, more and more sure about that this is a good idea, this is a good idea. And I think it's, it's so important, this thing, to have courage and leadership and vision and... Uh, Behind all the good city stories, actually, Curitiba in South America, in Brazil, uh, Bogota, um, the, the tram in Strasbourg, uh, the, the miracles in, in Barcelona, there are, and Portland, where the green won, and then there was another melody being played in one city in the United States way back, and that had a very big influence. So... It's very interesting to see what devotion and and commitment and, and daring is very important to have these best practices. But then when we have them, we must make sure they are well known worldwide. And then we can more with more courage go on and do similar things and even better things. I'll say something about um, climate change and leadership. Mm -hmm. The City of Sydney and the City of Melbourne both belong to the C40, and C40 was set up by Bloomberg when he was Mayor of New York, um, with Livingstone when he was Mayor of London, and Bill Clinton, who uh, originally funded the C40. It was originally 40 cities. It's now 90 cities, and those cities represent 1 in 12 people in the world and 25% of the world's economy. When you go to a C40 conference, and I've been to everyone since it's been established, you walk into the room, and you walk into a room of mayors, and I don't know, and you would never know whether that mayor was right wing, left wing, green or independent, because it never comes into it. When you walk into a C40 room of mayors, the only thing they're concerned about is what they need to do to, to serve their citizens. It's really extraordinary, but it demonstrates that it is possible to get past ideology and focus on what it is that your citizens need. Cities are starting, cities do that, cities are capable of doing that. Um, and it's, you know, it's that leadership and that capability. And it's partly to do with the fact that every day, as a mayor or as a city administrator, every day, 
if the city, you know, if the street, if the tram's not running, if the, if the power goes off, what, you know, if people can't get to work or to school, that's a problem right there and then. It doesn't matter where you sit. You can't, you know, go to ideology to solve that. You've got to sort it out right there and then. And that focuses you on what it is that your citizens need. It, we need more of that kind of leadership that we're seeing from our cities. Rob, you could respond to that or you, you, no, could, you I, can say no, anything you like. I absolutely <laughs> uh, agree with that. Um, I think there are two things I would say. Um, I think you need to remain optimistic, otherwise the alternative is uh, depression. And, uh, <laughs> you know, who wants to go through life, uh, you know, not feeling optimistic about the future? So, I mean, we're going to put a metro, not, not we, the state government's going to put a metro into the city. And all I read about in the newspapers are all the bad things. Mm. And I sit and look at it and say, so actually, what are the bad things? They're going to dig up a city square, which we designed. I should be, you know, horrified by that, but I'm not, because they're going to put a station underneath and they're going to rebuild the square. And they're going to build up, uh, dig up a bit of road up by RMIT and, and put another station in. Yes, there will be some trees lost, and that's a, a strong debate that's happening at the moment, and we're looking for the right compensation around that. But what are we going to get? We're going to get an investment in the city that will actually take our public transport network, which is this hand that goes across our metro area that transports people, you know, into the city, and we're going to make it 25% more efficient. So every now and again, we've got to stop worrying about that short-term inconvenience. You know, it's a five or six year, and people say, five or six years. Um, as you get to our age, five or six years is actually a very <laughs> short time. <laughs> You know, uh, yeah. had lots of those five or six years. Um, you end up like us. Yeah. So, you know, you've got to get past to the long game. And, and the long the game long is game. so important. Yeah. The second thing I'll say is we've got the technology to allow people to see what the long game looks like. We, we can't put in detergent planning documents with zones in and hope that people are going to understand that. We should throw out every planning scheme we've got, go back to scratch and say, okay, what's going to be stable? Where are we going to have you know, those areas that are stable, that have got heritage? What's in transition and what's going to be new? What are the things we need to know about those three areas? And now we have technology that we can actually envisage what that's going to look like and we can actually take people through it, you know, virtually. Mm. So we've got the tools. We just need to chuck out the 20th century in the planning scheme. And we've got to actually get a planning scheme that's relevant for the next 30 or 40 years where we've got to double the capacity of our cities. And you're not going to do it by doing what you've done for the last 100 years. <laughs> okay, I've, I'm probably supposed to be keeping time or something here. <laughs> I've got a, a vague sense of how we're going with time, but I might just keep going a little bit longer. Is that okay with all of you? Um, is that okay with Robert? Hopefully. Um, on, that, on that issue, I just want to, from, from the kind of uber scale, the big picture that you were just talking about in the long game, and I, I think that's absolutely right, and I still think there's a, a tension that we're always going to live with of the detail that Monica was just talking about, about, you know, the railway line intervention or the, the thing that's not going to work today that's going to inflame citizens who are then inconvenienced or suffer because of it, that immediate in-your-face stuff versus that bigger picture that, that is a big tension. But part of it's about, I guess, kind of coming all the way back into the detail, urban design, which is where we started and is threading through everything. You know, 
what is that? And I guess I'm specifically prompted to ask that question because Rob was just talking about the planning scheme, planning system. There are planners, architects, landscape architects, urban designers who are still a little bit undefined um, in Australia anyway. Um, are there tensions there? Are there issues? Is that something you want to talk about? Anybody? Rob does. <laughs> I thought he might. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I'll say something. You know, the professions are, um, and I, I, I can't look at Glenn when I say this in the front row, Joe, the professions are too strong. They are defending a position. So architects, and I'm an architect, and I'm a part of it, and I'm, I, I, I love being an architect. But I'm the equivalent of a brain surgeon. What I never got at university was being a general practitioner. Nobody actually taught me about how to build the context that I was going to be in, the city. And yet I've spent my whole life designing in cities. I went straight to the object. How do we make this beautiful? How do we make this functional? How do we make this sustainable? So I think, again, as I've said with the planning scheme, we need to seriously question our institutes and universities and the accreditation that makes urban design a postgraduate part of a course. It should be, in fact, the two or three years that takes all the professions, the planners, the architects, the landscape architects, the building surveyors, the developers, the, and puts them together to discuss the issues and that that they're going to come up in the city. Mm. Having done that as a course, then you can say, actually, the role I want to play in it is as, as an architect or as an, a landscape architect. So I think we've got to rethink that paradigm as well. Otherwise, what we'll end up with is really good architects who, you know, um, and, and Jan showed a few famous faces last night, and uh, you know it was embarrassing. So is that is it that, or is it that we're in fact a, a good architect is someone who does you know not what Jan was eloquently describing from his sixties education of architects moving objects around, um, and I'll, he might talk about that. But is it in fact that that's not good architecture, and that good architecture automatically is about responsiveness to context and i.e is good urban no. design, that good landscape architecture is good urban design. So is it something that's threaded through the discipline and is an essential part of it, which means we have to change it, or is it an additional thing in the way that you, you say? It should be intrinsic to it. The fact that Glenn's one of the best-known architects yes. in the world is because he designs for his context. You know, he knows the context. But we don't all actually, you know, understand the context we work in, and we certainly don't design well within it. Jan, did you want to say something? Yeah, um, I've been in academia for 40 years. I told about yesterday how I had to go back to School of Architecture to learn what they didn't taught me in the first place. And as they were not able to do that, I had to find out myself what, what I could use of education. But anyway, I, I have over the years been to many, many schools of architecture, landscape architecture, planning, urban design, you name it. And I think that generally the schools tend to be very rigid and conservative, and so does many of the institutes and professions in, in ivory towers here and there. And I think that, um, yeah, I hate to be a little bit critical with my own um, profession and, and the, the, the uh, neighboring professions, but I think that the... The, the really wonderful strengths I've seen has come from the citizens, the people who live in the cities, who live in the neighborhoods, who organize themselves in the bicycle mm -hmm. unions and whatever, who really have 
put force on the politicians to make better cities. Um, I have seen actually so much backwards, self, um, self, inward-looking, whatever academic stuff, which worries me. And I think that it's a fantastic thing that we have all these groups in the society and all these alert citizens who helps us to stay close to the ground and to the real issues and then we can enjoy from time to time some of the other issues but I, I agree that, that some of these um, bodies have become far too conservative and far too strong and too arrogant maybe. I'm not an architect or a planner so but I'm a city administrator and so when I'm dealing with, you know, developers and people who want to do things in the city, I can always remind them that actually the value comes from the context. It doesn't matter how spectacular the building is. If no one yeah. wants, can get there, if no one likes being around it because it's, you know, it's destroyed all of the sunlight or whatever, then actually it reduces the value of the property anyway. And, and I've got my, one of my favourite stories, but then I, but... The, the staff at the city, though, do need to be very skilled, as you said, yeah. at solving problems for people, though. So one of my favourite stories is once I had a developer come to see me, and I don't meet developers very often, but sometimes they're so cross that they make it to my office. And he came in with his big development you know, manager, and he was furious. And he doesn't mind me telling this story. He was furious, and he was... All we want is that much sun off Martin Place. That's all we want. You are whole, I've got a Chinese investor ready to get this, buy this property, and you're stopping us because of one little bit of sun on Martin Place. And I said, well, you're not getting it on my watch. And he stormed out, you know, and he was cross. But then our head of planning, who was an architect, you know, went with him and helped him resolve the building so that he could get the development that he needed and we didn't encroach on the sunlight in Martin Place. And then he wrote me an email and he said, that's what I love about you people at the City of Sydney. You know, as a consequence of that, I actually now have a much better building um, and I'm really grateful for that. So you can actually balance all of those competing needs, mm. but you do have to know what you stand for and you cannot compromise those things. Fantastic. And in fact, a brilliant note to end on. <laughs> Thank you. Well yeah, Jan wants to say one last yeah, thing. I would like to join the chorus of being optimistic. Yeah. I'm incredibly <laughs> optimistic. I've been in this game for 50 years and I've seen so many improvements in all corners of the world. Some, some places it goes a little bit slowly. Copenhagen, they worked slowly for 54 years, but they've got somewhere. In other cities, they worked like here for 30 years, and they've got really somewhere. In New York, they have done, and in Moscow, they only took three years. Um, <laughs> but they are so efficient over there. But anyway, I've seen so many improvements and so many good things happening and, and seen this gradual knowledge being e expanded and being distributed and people, the communication and dialogue 
between the various groups and professions and the people uh, it's all about have been improved. So I've seen so much being better in these years. So I'm incredibly optimistic. We just need to now solve a little problem about the individual mobility of mankind, but we'll solve that in a few years. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you. Not thank by you. automatic cars. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Can I ask you to thank our speakers, please? I don't think I'm allowed to invite any questions. I'm sorry about that. Um, thank you all so much for coming, and I'm sorry to keep you standing for so long, but I think that was a really fabulous discussion. Thank you, the three thank of you. you. Thank, thank you very much you. to M Pavilion, and thank you to Bijoy Jane and Studio Mumbai for this fabulous space that we're in. And um, thank you. Goodbye.